0: If you have your Bible, would you open um to Ephesians chapter 4, um, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Let us receive the word, if you would. Would you all stand as we receive the word? There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Father, we come before your word. It is our desire to receive your word and your seed of truth to be planted in our soil, in our heart. And we desire that your word will disciple us. Your word will teach us, correct us, encourage us, and helps us to, to get up on our feet. To live our lives, the lives that we are meant to live. So, Father, we ask for your spirit. Be here. Be present as you promised. Work through your servant to deliver your message and work in their, your people's heart with humility, with obedience. And they will receive your word and your word will set them free and give them life and move them to the place And accomplishing your sovereign will in their lives. We pray for your word to be powerful. Your word to truly bring transformation that we desire. That require for us to grow each and every day. Not only outside physically. But also inside spiritually. Bless us with your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. So folks, we are at the halfway point in the book of Ephesians. So we um, took some time and we studied through the first three chapters. And we're now entering into the second half of this book. And up to this and through the first three chapters, what Paul did was to explain Christian doctrines. And you see doctrines such as doctrine of predestination, doctrine of election, doctrine of adoption, doctrine of redemption, doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the work that he does, uh, doctrine of rebirth, regeneration, doctrine of church is predominantly mainly in the forefront as well. How God worked through His Son, Jesus Christ, bringing, joining people together in His Son, Jesus Christ, together. Now, these are the doctrines. These are the proper theological sound foundation that they need to be on. So Paul reminded the Ephesians, what they must understand and what they stand on and establish and build upon. So that's first three chapters. Very theologically oriented. And then he goes on in chapter 4. And immediately he goes on and he says, Therefore, I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what Paul is essentially saying here is that now that you know these important doctrines in the Bible, what God has done to move heaven and earth, to send His Son to die on a cross for you to be saved and redeemed and have this life of eternity Now that you understand these important doctrines, now that you understand how you became Christ's followers, his disciples, now that you know who you are in Jesus Christ and what you have in your possession, he says, therefore, now that you know, walk, live in a way, in a manner that the Lord deserves from you. Now, before we get into this manner of life, I, I think it was interesting to see this phrase. Isn't it interesting to see a phrase that Paul himself referred to his current predicament that he was in? And he he calls himself a prisoner for the Lord. Now, why does he do this? He already actually used this phrase in In Chapter Three, Verse One, he called himself a prisoner of the Lord, but he does this again here. What's the intention? What's the purpose behind inserting this phrase in the juncture that we are on? Does he want them to feel i don't know guilty, sorry for where you know what Paul is going through in prison? What's his motivation to referring himself as a prisoner for the Lord? Is he seeking pity, seeking sympathy? But in earlier chapter, chapter 3, verse 13, he, he assures them, he asks them, in fact, not to be disappointed, not to be discouraged by his imprisonment. Few verses earlier, in fact. And then here is Chapter Four, Verse One, and all of a sudden he already asked them to not to be disappointed, to not to be discouraged, yet he brings it up again. I'm a prisoner for the Lord, and why is he doing this? Why is he mentioning about this his current status, real predicament that he was in, and more and more I see in the context I, I feel. He has done this purposely and he purposely included the reality of his condition in order to remind them. I think he has done this, inserted that phrase in in hope of reminding them that the life that they are supposed to live, this life that is worthy of the calling through Jesus Christ will come at a cost. It's costly. There is a price. Christian walk, Christian life that is worthy of the gospel, worthy of his death and his resurrection is not walking the park. It's not always smooth sail. It's not always about grace and blessing and prosperity. Paul's. Reminding the Ephesians, there is price to pay. Are you willing to pay the price in order to walk with the Lord, in order for you to be obedient to the Lord? You see, Paul became a prisoner for the Lord on his way to Damascus. And ever since that fateful day, that moment, he never sought to be free from this divine confinement. But rather, he cherished his imprisonment. He embraced it. It was an honor. It was a privilege for him to participate in Christ's suffering. For Paul, Christ really uh, uh, was the reason for being, reason for his existence. He sees the world. He sees the people through the eyes of the Lord rather than what he wants to see, what he wants to accomplish. Christ was his motivation. Christ was his standard. Christ was his vision for everything he did. And everything he was, everything he did was all for his Lord. And he encapsulate that with that phrase, I'm a prisoner in the Lord. I, Paul, an apostle, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you. I urge you. That's the purpose. He is doing this to urge them. Now, that's the word ESV used, urge. But if you look at other translations, mainly New American Standard Bible, which is a very literal translation of English translation we've got. uh, NASB would use Implore instead of urge, implore, and to me, implore has more of that intensity deeper uh, a stronger pleading that's what literally implore means, right begging someone earnestly and desperately uh, for that person to do something you're imploring you're pleading it, it carries that intense feelings, the strong desire this is not a simple suggestion this is not simple request but a plea he's not merely making suggestions to the Ephesians take it or leave it oh if you can do this no he's pleading for them to receive God's calling as he does for them to see God's calling as he sees I implore you I urge you And his attitude here is such that he will not rest until the people in Ephesus, all of them would walk in a manner worthy of his calling. And I I think we need to understand Paul's desperation. Do you understand who you are? Do you really understand what Bible has been talking about the story of salvation, what God has done with His one and only Son, what He went through, and where you were and where you are through Jesus Christ, and in Jesus Christ, what kind of life and worth that you have. Do you understand this? Then I implore you, I'm begging you, with all that I have, for you to see and understand what kind of life that you need to live as a person who received his death and resurrection. I beg you for you to live a life in a manner that is worthy of the calling you have received from the Lord. It's not an insurance policy. It's not an optional thing. It's a cherry on top. It's not a a switch that you turn on when you feel a little godly and you need something from God. This is a manner of life. And we establish these doctrinal bases who God is, what He has done before the creation to call you to have you as His own child. Do you understand this? I'm begging you. And then Paul explains what it means. What it means to live this life. This life that looks worthy. We will never be worthy. We will never reach that point. But what Paul's point is, let's strive and struggle to live for the life that he has given to us. We're indebted. And he will list in verses 2 and 3. Four items. Four character traits that the people who strive, struggle to live a life that is worthy for the Lord, worthy of the calling that they receive for these people to cultivate in their lives. What they need to practice as they live such life. Traits that must be present. The first item that he goes, that, that he lists is humility. First item. Believers, people in Jesus Christ must cultivate humility. You've got to practice humility. Humility is that is the first and the most foundational Christian virtue. It begins there. But interesting thing about humility in this context, as Paul was addressing Ephesians, Neither the Romans or, or, nor the Greeks, have; a, ha, they don't even have a word to describe humility. Such word does not exist. The concept, the idea of being humble is so foreign to the Romans and to the Greeks that they didn't even create a word. It's just absurd, it's abhorring. The idea of being weak. So you mean that I need to, you know, we need to teach others, encourage one another to be humble, to be weak, and I need to teach my children, raise them up to know what it means to be humble in humility? Uh Uh-uh. That's not the idea of Romans or Greeks. They didn't believe in humility because that is weakness. But on the other hand, for Christians, You and I cannot even begin to understand the gospel without humility. You don't come to the realization of your depravity, your eternal depravity, how sinful, how otherwise would forever be damned without Jesus Christ. You don't understand that without humility. You don't even see and recognize your sinful nature in need of Savior each and every day without humility. You can't praise God. We gather here to worship God. You can't worship God truthfully, wholeheartedly without humility as you humble yourself. You are God and I am not. You can't begin to open your hearts to the word and receive the word as God's spoken word right now without humility. It's a central Christian virtue. Paul described the motto of humility Now, our Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 2, how he emptied himself. How he emptied himself. He came to this world as God's one and only son. right? The son of God. Yet he was born in a stable. Yet he was born to a peasant family. He owned no property. He died as a common criminal. And finally, he died. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And if that is how your Lord lived and died on this earth, Paul's point is simple. How much more should we do the same as his disciples? As his follower. Folks, we agree humility is a virtue as Christians we must seek. We agree. We need to seek humility in our lives. But the moment you claim to have humility, that's when the problem occurs. The moment you feel that you have some resemblance of humility, that's when the pride takes over. And pride, I tell you, is a dangerous thing for Christians. I believe the first sin was pride. The original sin of Adam and Eve, when you think about it, at the core issue, it stemmed out of pride. Why? Because they trusted in their own logic, trusted in their own understanding. And it sounds good, it looks good, And and, then they will take an action above God, above his word, pride. And ever since then, every sin we commit in some ways or another is an extension of pride. And we are, to be honest, and we will always be in a battle with pride in ourselves as Christians. And we're constantly tempted to be proud of our abilities, be proud of our achievement, our uh, education, our possession, our status, our appearance, our power, even our spouse and children. Uh, We're proud of the things that we have and we accomplish even as Christians. We're even proud of our biblical knowledge. We're proud of our religious achievement even in our church. Cry. And Paul says, I want you to walk, I plead you, I beg you to walk in a manner that is worthy of Christ is calling. The first item that you need to have, you gotta be humble. Have humility. Empty yourselves. The second item Paul mentions here is gentleness. That's what we need to practice. Got to cultivate gentleness. Now this gentleness, in fact, is a product of humility. Without humility, you can't be gentle. And this gentleness, uh, the biblical word for gentle is meek. When we studied the Sermon on Mount, when we went through uh, the list of the Beatitudes, remember that? Early part of the pandemic, we went through that book. Now, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the third item on the list, blessed are the meek, he said. Blessed are the meek. Now, this word meek is gentleness, meekness to the point that you will voluntarily, willingly rank yourself under someone. That's meekness. You're a major, you're going to your colonel you will rank yourself under a private. You're going to do that voluntarily and willingly. This word meekness, another uh, usage that in, in the Greek setting was to describe animals that had been domesticated. It means that these animals learn to accept the control of their masters and they do what they tell them to do. So, uh, they would behave according to the master's wish. But what we need to understand is that the, these animals still retain their natural, raw strength and power. They're only tamed. And these horses, for example, are domesticated and trained. And they run just as fast as other untamed wild horses. But the difference right now is It runs when and where the Master tells us to run. That's the difference. There's nothing different about it. But now it is tamed, controlled. The power is there, strength is there, but it is under control. For us to be meek and gentle is ultimately we are under the control of God, under the control of the Holy Spirit. We retain this strength, the power that raised, jesus christ but that power is under the control of the holy spirit in the biblical meekness this gentleness is a power that god would use according to his will therefore we are gentle and you see how this gentleness is a product of the humility the third item that we need to practice is patience we got to cultivate patience. And once again, this is a product of humility and meekness. Without it, this patience do not come out. Now, I for one to tell you, it's, it takes a long time to learn patience. It's one of the harder virtues to learn because mainly you got to work on your humility. you got to work on your gentleness. Without it, patience won't come. Now, in all things that you do, it requires patience. If you want to be good at something, you got to be patient. You got to work at it and you have to wait. I, I planted a few trees, fruit trees in my backyard. And I did research and I picked a spot and I lovingly planted this tree. It's tiny. But when you buy these trees from box, big box stores, or order online and pick it up from Costco or whatever, it comes with a box. It comes with a picture. And those pictures are not tiny, you know, bare, you know, tree, but vibrant with fruits on those trees. And when you buy them, you buy for that reason. And I told Christina, the, the, the real harvest we will ever have from these trees that I planted this year, will be when, you know, grace will be in high school. It will take two to three years or more for you to have meaningful harvest. You saw the picture, what they promised, this tree will grow to be. But yet you require, you need to be patient, work at it, cultivate it. Now, the literal meaning, biblical meaning of patience, is long suffering. It, that's a literal translation of patience. You suffer for a long, long time. That's patience. I, I know Jeff is here. He's, not, he's the elder of this room. Sorry to point that out to you. <laughs> but as you live, one thing I realize is that There's no other way for you to learn patience other than, other than going through these long, painful period process for you to really learn patience. Abraham learned to be patient. Genesis chapter 12, God appears to Abraham. He calls him and he makes a promise. I will make you into a great nation. Huge like stars and sand in the beach. Yet he had no son. He will accumulate his wealth and he sees the work of God, the might of God in, as he walked with him. Yet he still had no son. And you're going to make me into a great nation and I don't have a son. I got no child. He waited painfully and through some mistakes that he had made many, many years. And even after he received his son Isaac, God tested his faith even more. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 15 says this, And thus Abraham... Therefore, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He waited and he received the promise. A few chapters later, when you see uh, in chapter 11, when you see great men and women of faith in that hall of faith in chapter 11, look at those names and all those uh, men and women of great faith, when you recount some of those stories, who they are and what they have gone through, you must realize that this great faith that they have was accompanied by their willingness to wait for the Lord. Patiently wait for the Lord, for His will to be done according to His plan at His time. These people waited patiently. Was it pleasant and fun for them to really watch their tree? Nothing ever happens. Watch the life that they as faithfully walk in the footsteps of the Lord and do all that God commanded them to do, yet there is no real change. There is no transformation. Feels like I'm still in the darkness, yet God prevailed. They held on to faith. And it requires faith for you to be patient. If you trust in the word of God and you believe in his promise, that what we have to do is wait patiently. And that we need to cultivate. Fourth item Paul lists here is love. But not just any love. It's not tingly emotional uh, thing that we speak of. But this is enduring love. This is covering love. Not just any love, but covering love. Uh, this is a love that Paul ta- Peter talks about. Love covers a multitude of sins. This love looks like this. It's like you throw a blanket over a person, over the sins of other people. Now, when you do that, you are not covering, turning your blind eyes on the sins of others. You're not justifying or excusing them from their sin. But what you are doing is that by doing so, by covering their sin, what you are doing is you are preventing, you are making sure the sin will not be any more known than necessary. Proverbs says this, hatred stirs up strife. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgression. This is covering love. This is forbearing love. This is an agape love. This is unconditional love. This is, uh, this is continuous, continuous giving love. And we are to love in such a way as our Lord demonstrated His love for us. Covering. Now, this is what Paul is begging. You understand these doctrines. You understand how you came to be in Jesus Christ and who you are now. And I'm begging you. I'm imploring you. That you will live a life that is manner, that is worthy of the calling. Live in a way that, that the Lord who died on the cross deserves from you. Live your life in humility. Live your life in gentleness, in patience, with covering mind. And then final item that he lists here. He says, believers, you've got to work on your unity. We have to labor for unity in the church. This is what Paul says. ESB Virgin will say, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. NIV will say, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, as you read this, one thing is very clear. That is, this unity, what Paul is urging, pleading Ephesians to keep, maintain, which means they don't have to create. They did not make this unity happen. Right? This unity was what? Given in the Spirit. What you need to do is maintain it, keep it. With eagerness and passion, you have to labor, work on This is something God has given to you. Blessing. And what you do is you need to keep it. How do we keep this unity? And this is where, this is why this is the last item on the list. This is where we need these godly character traits. We need to be humble. We need to be gentle. We need to be uh, patient. We need to be loving in order for you to do what? Keep this unity. Because let's face it. Naturally. Every one of us. Feels we are someone. Our opinion matters. I mean. fact of the matter is. We have opinion about almost everything. Right? You want to be known. You want to be recognized. I, You know. However. That's not who we are anymore. That's not how we live in Jesus Christ. Paul says, we're prisoners for the Lord Jesus. Prisoners don't have their right. Prisoners don't ask for certain privileges. They don't. It's taken from you. We're the prisoner. Yet we embrace this confinement. We live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. We embrace it and we're proud of the fact that we are the prisoners of Jesus Christ. Therefore, how do we live? We strive to live in such a way that is worthy of our Lord's death and resurrection. We live each and every moment that I could be worthy to His calling. So we live in a way that that we would humble ourselves before God and before others. We live our lives with gentleness and patience with others, just as how God is gentle and patient with us. Can you imagine God without gentleness and patience with you? That's a scary thought. That's really, really scary. And we are to love as his children. As John will eloquently say, because God is love, and you are His children, you are to love. Got to love, like our Lord loved, unconditional, self-sacrificing love, and this is how we live. And when we live this way, we yes, it's a cultivating uh, our character, the traits. Individually, but we don't live by ourselves. We live together as a church. As we placed, we are placed in Jesus Christ. We have one spirit, one baptism, one faith, one hope, one God, one Father who is in all through all. He is all. We live in this body. And therefore, it is our duty and responsibility to make Every effort to be eager to maintain, keep this unity that was given to us. Amen. And we can't do that without humility. I'm better than. We can't do this without being gentle, putting ourselves in their shoes, without being patient with one another, without covering their mistakes. Unity is far-fetched idea without those characters in us. And this is what he lists as a people who is in Jesus Christ living a life that is worthy of the calling we have received. Paul says in verse 4 through 6, I'm going to just read it. There is only one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all, through all and in all. I know this day and age, we promote individualism, individualistic life. Your choice, what you feel, how you feel matter. That's the world ways to combat, which is completely against what we are meant to be in Jesus Christ, in the community of faith. Now, as Christians, once again, if you know these truths, these doctrines, and you have firm establishment of these theological truths in you, and Paul says, I'm begging you, Leading to you to live a life that is worthy of our Lord. Don't waste your life. Don't just live like the rest of the world would live. Don't forget your identity. Don't forget who you are. Remind yourself about grace and love. The mercy that God has. Don't forget about these truths. Live in humility. Live. In gentleness, patience and love and cherish your church. Eager to meet and stirring up one another to meet and gather. To be there for one another. And Paul simply puts it. That is a life that is worthy of the calling that we have. That is how we do Christianity. Amen. Simple truth. Now, there are other things we're we're looking forward to. There are a lot more practical things that we will be discussing in in, the later part of chapter 4, 5, and 6. But listen, this is where it begins. This is how he sets the tone. Everything else, how you give, how you care, how you build the church, how you... Uh, can be a husband and wife and children and how you carry yourself in the workplace and all of these things will come based upon what? This. This is how we do it. For we are in Jesus Christ. Amen? I hope and pray that God, who loves you dearly in Jesus Christ through the Spirit, that he would speak to you what it means for you to live a life that is worthy of the calling. Not just going through the motion, not just the head knowledge, but something that you do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for your command. We see the heart of the apostle. We understand why he began where he began in in the first chapter. How he uh, penned out this grand scheme of God's salvation and explained all things that God has done through his son Jesus Christ and explaining the condition of ourselves with or without Jesus Christ and what the church is and meant to be. now that we know these fundamental truth of who God is and who we are. Father, I pray, I beg you, that you will help us to be enlightened and open our eyes of the heart. It's not about the knowledge. It's not about how much we know and we claim to know but it's about how we live. Now our lives are not the requirement of this salvation. Yet Lord, if we truly are your people, if we are truly thankful and indebted and we see ourselves holy unto you in Jesus Christ, confined gladly, willingly, it is our joy and blessing to sing about being in Jesus Christ. That are we not supposed to live a life that reflects that? The Lord's death, His life, His teaching, His commands. So I pray that you would help us to see that how desperately we need that humility, that gentleness, the patience, the love, the passion that we got to have for one another to maintain this unity that you have given to us, that we will not spoil it, break it, but cherish it. May the Spirit of God who lives in us helps us to mature and grow in these character traits. We're all for your glory. God, who is over all things, through all things, in all things, we turn to you, Father. This is our desire. So, Lord, help us. May you be glorified and magnified through all that we are, all that we do, all that we say, This is our desire. Bless your people, Lord. Go with them, go before them. May this truth, this command, be reality of our daily lives. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.